0: certainly wish you a happy Mother's Day. Uh, We're very grateful for the mothers here, uh, past, present, future mothers. Uh, We're grateful for all that the mothers of this church mean to their families, and of course, all that the mothers mean to this church, all the ways that you serve and all the ways that you contribute here. So before you leave today, make sure that you grab a gift as you walk out the door. It's nothing big, but it's just a small token of our appreciation to you on behalf of our church. Now, Sometimes we take things for granted. Maybe we take our mothers for granted and we forget how truly great these things really are. Think about your favorite sports team. Maybe you forget how great a team really was until you sit back and watch highlights of their championship season and all those memories come back and you remember just how good they actually were. Maybe you look back and you kind of forget just how much fun your college days were or your high school days were. But then you go back for a reunion and you're reminded of how great those memories really are. With our kids, people a lot older and wiser than me and Olivia always tell us that we might not realize it now, but one day we're going to look back and we're going to realize that we took for granted what it was like to have little kids. Now, when we find ourselves taking things for granted, which we're all guilty of from time to time, we're in need of reminders to put things back in perspective. And I think many of us would agree that we're not just in need of the occasional reminder. Many of us are in need of consistent reminders, constant reminders, even repetitive reminders to not take things for granted and not miss out on how great they really are. It's true of so many things in this life, and it's true even of Jesus. We as Christians need constant, repetitive, and consistent reminders of just how great Jesus really is in order that we might take him for granted and take what he has done for granted. So with that, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be covering the whole chapter, verses 1 through 28, this morning. If you are using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 863. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we read Hebrews 7, let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for this day. Uh, We're grateful for the rain uh, that brings new life as this Season continues to progress and things get greener and flowers bloom. Uh, We're grateful for your artistry and your power that we can see in creation. And God, we're also thankful for mothers. Uh, This time of year, we always want to honor our mothers and show them how much we appreciate them. And God, I pray that wouldn't just be a one day thing, but that we would not take them for granted and that we would realize how great mothers really are. And God, I pray that as we worship you this morning, as we read from your word, that we would not take you for granted, not take your word for granted, and not take your son for granted. God, let us worship you for how great you really are, not just because it's our routine, not just because it's Sunday morning, but God, because we really, truly realize and are truly in awe of how great you are and how great it is what you've done for us. We love you, we praise you, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, by now in Hebrews, we should start noticing a pattern of what we've covered so far. The author of Hebrews seems to have two main themes that he's focused on up to this point. The first theme is Christology. That is a fancy word for the study of Jesus Teaching on Jesus. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what it meant for believers way back then, and what it means for believers right now. People like you and people like me. A huge theme is Christology. Another huge theme is perseverance. Throughout this book, he has already repeatedly encouraged and challenged Christians to stand strong in their faith in the face of opposition, in the face of temptation, in the face of the circumstances that life throws at us, in the face of time. And so far, the author has gone back and forth between these two themes, kind of over and over again. Christology, perseverance. Christology, perseverance. Jesus is great. Stand strong in your faith. And the fact that he's gone back and forth between these two things is no coincidence. Because these two themes very much go together. After all, when you think about it, why would you stand strong in your faith? If you put yourself in the shoes of these believers who received this letter, it could be kind of tempting to maybe renounce your faith in Jesus. Maybe all the opposition would go away. Maybe the persecution would lighten up a little bit if you just denied faith in Christ, if you didn't stand strong. Why would you continue standing strong when life could be so much easier if you just gave in? Well, because Jesus is great. The greatness of Jesus. And then on top of that, how can you stand strong in your faith? Let's say that you do want to stand strong, that you do realize that Jesus is great, that you don't want to give in to opposition and temptation and the wear and tear of time. How can you possibly stand strong when you're swimming upstream? Again, the fact that Jesus is great. Jesus' greatness is why we stand strong in our faith. And Jesus' greatness is how we stand strong in our faith. So with that, let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, the author of Hebrews has mentioned this one name, Several times already. and We're finally going to talk about who this guy really is. I know you've been sitting on the edge of your seat wondering who is Melchizedek. Well, we're going to learn about him this morning. What's the big deal about Melchizedek? Who is this guy and why does the author of Hebrews continually bring him up, continually mention his name? Well, to get introduced to Melchizedek, we need to turn to the Old Testament. We need to turn to Genesis 13 and 14. In Genesis 13, our old friend Abraham has helped in the defeat of four eastern kings. Now, if you remember Abraham, he's kind of a big deal. He's the guy who, in Genesis 12, is minding his own business, nothing unique about him, nothing special about him. And then all of a sudden, God calls him. God calls him to follow him wherever he tells him to go. Abraham doesn't know anything about this God. Abraham doesn't know where he's going. And yet he picks up everything and everyone and follows and he obeys. And God gives Abraham a promise that, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your wife. I'm going to give you offspring, even though you're really, really old. And not only that, your offspring, they're going to outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And all of the world is going to be blessed through your offspring. This guy, Abraham, is a huge, huge deal. Now, when we find him in Genesis 13, he's just a resident in the land. There's this battle happening between these surrounding kings. And really, it shouldn't have been any of Abraham's business. However, Abraham's nephew, Lot, is taken captive by one of those kings. So now, all of a sudden, Abraham has some skin in the game. He has to get involved. He has to go save his nephew Lot, and he does just that. The kings are defeated, Lot is rescued, and they return home. And when they get back, Abraham is greeted by two men, Berah, the king of Sodom, and then our guy Melchizedek. Let's pick up in Genesis chapter 14 starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Shadolamer, I just did my best to pronounce that. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So, who is this guy, Melchizedek? Well, the text identifies him as the king of Salem. Psalm 76 tells us that at one time, Jerusalem went by that name, Salem. But Salem can also mean king of peace. The name Melchizedek can mean, my king is righteous, or my king is just. But not only is Melchizedek a king, Melchizedek is also a priest from God. In their celebration as Abram returns from defeating the kings and rescuing Lot, Melchizedek brings him bread and wine, and Melchizedek blesses him. And apparently, Abraham has a pretty high level of respect for Melchizedek, because he gives Melchizedek some of the spoil of what he's won. And quite frankly, Abraham's response to Melchizedek is quite different from his response to Barah, the king of Sodom. Melchizedek and Barah appear to be very different kings. Compared to Melchizedek, Berah comes across as kind of rough, kind of crude. And to be honest, Abraham doesn't show him a whole lot of respect. Abraham gladly received Melchizedek's gifts, but he wants nothing to do with Baron's gifts. Now, what we read so far is that it's safe to say that Abraham viewed Melchizedek as an important guy. But Melchizedek is also a pretty mysterious figure, because after this one somewhat obscure passage in Genesis 13, Melchizedek pretty much vanishes. Now, if we go back to that Hebrews 7, 1 through 3 passage, we see a few things the author of Hebrews says about it. He says that he's without father, without mother, without genealogy. And that really only adds to the mystery of who Melchizedek is. We have no idea who he came from. He's not a Levite, which traditionally you had to be from the line of Levi in the Old Testament to be a priest. And yet Levi isn't even born yet. But not only is he a priest, he's a priest forever. The author of Hebrews says we don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. And as if he's not already mysterious enough, some speculate whether or not the author of Hebrews views Melchizedek as some kind of divine being, even some kind of angel. But whatever the answers to all those questions may be, the author is trying to make one point clear. And the point he's trying to make clear is that Melchizedek is very, very important. We pick that up in verse 4 of Hebrews 7. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, this is kind of obscure. This passage is kind of strange. There are references that are hard to wrap your mind around. that don't really seem to have a whole lot in common with things that we understand. Kind of hard to really explain. But if you follow the argument of what this author is trying to put forth, He's trying to put forth a proof of how great Melchizedek is. And the proof that he offers is that Abraham tithed to him. He's arguing that the Levites, God's Old Testament priests, very important people, the ones who paid tithes to God, the ones who received tithes from the people, those people paid tithes to Melchizedek. And consequently, Melchizedek's priesthood is much greater than the Levite's priesthood. But not only that, there's more proof of how great Melchizedek is. After all, he blessed Abraham. That means that he was superior to Abraham, who's only the most important person in the history of Judaism. The point is that Melchizedek is the greatest priest who has ever lived up to this point. That's the idea the author is getting at. Let's pick up in verse 11 of Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So as great as Melchizedek is, as important and even mysterious as this guy is, another priest has come. And this priest does have some things in common with Melchizedek. Now, why did the priest come? Because perfection could not be attained through the Levitical priesthood. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the Day of Atonement. That was the day where the priest would once a year go into the temple and he would present the sacrifices to God. And they'd take the scapegoat and put all their sins on the scapegoat and send the goat away. Make sure it didn't come back. And that's how all their guilt, that's how all of their sin was forgiven. Now, as important as the Day of Atonement was, it couldn't guarantee forgiveness of sins. And it had to be done repeatedly. Remember what we talked about with those other priests, the Levitical priests? They were sinful men, just like you and just like me. Remember the whole approaching God's throne with confidence thing? The old priests couldn't offer that to sinful people. The one day a year where they could come into God's presence, the other people had to stay outside. But with this new priest's arrival, some big changes have occurred. This new priest, like Melchizedek, is not a Levite. This new priest, our Lord, came from Judah. Now, the author hasn't mentioned his name yet, but the people who are familiar with Jesus, they probably know exactly where this is going. And yet, the author seems like he's trying to build anticipation. Who is this new priest? Who could possibly be greater than Melchizedek? Well, we're starting to see more hints. Let's pick up in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So Melchizedek wasn't a Levite. Why does he get to be a priest? This new priest wasn't a Levite. Why does he get to be a priest? What makes him so great? What makes him so special? Well, the answer is in two words that we just read. The answer is because of his indestructible life. This new priest, Jesus, led an indestructible life in terms of quality. He was sinless, he was perfect, and he was righteous. He led an indestructible life in terms of duration. He was resurrected from the dead. Death could not hold him. Not even a cross could defeat him. And because of this indestructible life, a new hope has been introduced. And in fact, a better hope. Has been introduced. The law. The priests. They had a purpose. But their purpose was not to offer forgiveness of sin. Once and for all. Their purpose was not to perfect sinful man. Their purpose was not to reconcile sinful men. To a perfect God. And the truth is that if the law or the priest's. If those are the places that you go to find forgiveness or to be perfected or be reconciled to God, then guess what? They're useless. They're meaningless. This better hope has come. A new hope has come. And that hope is named Jesus. Jesus completes the law. Jesus fulfills the law. And Jesus offers what the law and the priests could never offer. He offers people like you and people like me the ability to draw near to God. The ability to approach God's throne with confidence. That's the new hope. That's the better hope. Better than anything that anyone has ever seen in the Old Testament. Now, I know this is a lot to take in all at once. Obscure references, hard to understand passages, names like Melchizedek and all kinds of other crazy, crazy ideas. But the short version that we've talked about so far is this. Melchizedek is greater than all the other priests. And yet Jesus is even greater than Melchizedek. Because of his indestructible life. Because of his perfect sacrifice, Jesus has done what no other priest could do, what the law was never meant to do. And that's allow sinful people like you and me to draw near to God with confidence. Let's pick up in verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 7, coming close to the end. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but... This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to draw close to the uh, he's able to save to the uttermost excuse me those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them so we've already talked about one old testament passage we talked about genesis 13 and 14 but now we see the author bringing in another old testament passage and that's psalm 110 the idea is that even though jesus is not a levite god has confirmed him as a priest Through Psalm 110, God has confirmed him with an oath. And not only is this priest very much confirmed, this priest doesn't die like all the other priests did. This priest lives. This priest is eternal. This priest makes intercession for his people to this very day. It's pretty incredible to think about that idea of Jesus making intercession for his people to this very day. At this moment, Jesus is speaking to God, the father on your behalf. It's pretty crazy to think about. But maybe the most amazing part of this passage that we so often take for granted, that we so often need reminding of are just a few words that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost some translations say jesus saves us perfectly or that jesus saves us completely the point is that jesus is able to save you the way the law couldn't the way the priests couldn't the way your works can't It doesn't matter how involved you are with the church or how much money you give or how many homeless mouths you feed or how much you contribute to charity or even how moral and ethical you try to be in all those different areas of life. Those things ultimately don't save you. Only Jesus can save you to the uttermost. Only Jesus can make that claim. And this is the truth that we so often take For granted. And this is the truth that we so often need reminding of. Let's close out the passage in verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I love the closing of this passage, 26 through 28, because the author of Hebrews simply can't say enough about how great Jesus is. In these verses, he comes across like that lovesick teenager who just can't stop talking about their crush, even though it drives everyone else crazy. Look at the words he uses to describe Jesus. He uses words like holy and innocent and unstained, which really those words all mean the same thing. And yet he just keeps saying them. He can't stop talking about Jesus. He says that Jesus was separated from sinners Which is ironic because at some points in this book, the author makes points to show just how similar Jesus is to people like you and me. He put on flesh, he faced temptation. But here he indicates that at the same time, Jesus is so much different than us. He has so much in common with us, and yet he's so different, and he saves us to the uttermost. He says that Jesus is exalted above the heavens. That he doesn't need to offer sacrifices daily for himself or for others because he already offered a perfect sacrifice once and for all. He offered himself on the cross. His body broken and his blood spilled. The point is really quite simple. Jesus is the greatest. He is the one who allows us to approach God's throne with confidence. That's the point. That's it. That's what we need reminding of. Now, again, some passages and some sermons serve very different purposes. Some passages and sermons are meant to challenge. Some are meant to convict. Some are meant to warn. Some are meant to encourage. Some are meant to comfort. But this passage and this sermon reminds. That's the point. We're trying to remind you of something. Now, you might think that this is repetitive, Talking about the greatness of Jesus over and over again. And yet from what we read this morning, at least in the author's eyes, it's the only thing he ever wants to talk about. How great Jesus is. I pray that the same could be said of me and the same could be said of you. That those who know us best would say, yeah, I know that person. They're always talking about how great Jesus is. I pray that could be said of us. I pray that we might not forget his greatness, that we might not take his greatness for granted. I pray that we would cling to these reminders of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, how he has saved us to the uttermost and how he has done what the law and the priests couldn't do. I pray that I will never get tired of preaching about Jesus' greatness and that you will never get tired of hearing about Jesus' greatness. So this morning, let's hold fast to that greatness. Let's go out and sing of that greatness from the rooftops. Let's never get tired of reading about it. Never get tired of hearing about it over and over and over again. Because He has saved us to the uttermost. He allows us to approach God's throne with confidence. And this greatness is what helps us persevere and what helps us stand strong, even when it would seem like it's so much easier to just give up. Jesus is great. I pray that you never forget that. And I pray that I never forget that. Let's pray right now. Father, your word is challenging at times. Your word is confusing at times. Sometimes we read passages and we don't know what's being said and we don't get the references and we don't get the names and the places and all these different things. And this passage may be one of those. It's kind of one of those more difficult passages to read and understand. And yet, as we look at it this morning, it becomes very, very clear that the main point is pretty simple. Your son is great. Your son has saved us to the uttermost the way no one else could save us the way nothing else could save us. And God, I pray that we would never get tired of reading about that. We'd never get tired of hearing about it. We'd never get tired of talking about it. I pray that we would take that message to the world around us to show people just how great it is what you've done for us and just how great your son is. God, I pray that as we face challenges and opposition when we don't know where else to go and who else to turn to I pray that if nothing else we would lift our eyes and look at the greatness of your son I pray that the greatness of your son is what would give us the strength and the power to stand strong I pray that the greatness of your son would constantly be on our minds that we would never take it for granted God we love you We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.